one of the main teachings, core teachings of uh, Theravada Buddhism is the Anapanasati Sutta, um, Mindfulness of Breathing Discourse. Now, last week on March 1st of 2023, I reviewed uh, the functions of this practice. What I mean by that is uh, certain procedures that you follow and how those training procedures change the structure of the brain in beneficial ways. I briefly mentioned uh, what are called the 16 stanzas of the uh, Anapanasati Sutta. Usually they're divided into four tetrads. And so I said then that I'm going to talk about them more thoroughly in the future. This is the future. So that's the topic for this evening's um, discussion. This is a very rich uh, teaching. So I'm going to do my best to cover it. Hope you'll bear with me and find it useful. There are two monks who I admire who have uh, written books about the Anapanasati Sutta. There are a bunch of books been written about it and there are several of them that are good, but the ones that I keep returning to, uh, one of them is called Mindfulness with Breathing. A Manual for Serious Beginners. It's written by a monk named Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, a Thai monk and scholar. Um, he's no longer alive. But that's a good book, and you can buy it in paperback. You can also download it as a free PDF document. Um, I will be posting these notes that I'm working from um, tomorrow or the next day and you'll have the title on hand but if you just use that as a search term you'll get there um, the other author is still alive Bhikkhu Analio he's a German monk and uh, he currently lives at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Massachusetts and he's written some really well researched books on a variety of um, topics related to the Dharma. I have a bunch of them on my bookshelf. The book in, that he authored in this case is Mindfulness of Breathing, a practice guide and translations. Now, this is not an easy read. It's really uh, well-researched and uh, very... Um, very scholarly. I use it as a resource on my self-retreats. It can also be downloaded as a free PDF file. You can you know, use the title for your search terms as well. Or you can buy it in paperback. I have both versions. I have a version in my computer and um, I have the book with lots and lots of notes in it. All the quotes for this article are from the PDF copy of that book. Now, one of the things I admire about Buddhism, the uh, teachings, is that they're very, very coherent and well integrated with one another. Um, another discourse that I frequently refer to and Analyo has actually written three books about this other um, teaching. It's called the Satipatthana Sutta, a discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, this discourse kind of feeds into that. And the 16 stanzas are typically divided into four groupings called tetrads. They're called tetrads because there are four stanzas in each group. And each tetrad stands for a different foundation of mindfulness. The first tetrad uh, 
stanzas one through four it relates to the first foundation, uh, mindfulness of the body. Second stand, uh, tetrad refers to mindfulness of feelings. Third tetrad refers to mindfulness of the mind. And the fourth uh, to mindfulness of mental phenomena. There's a slightly different rendering of each of these foundations than there is in the Satipatthana um, teaching. Um, the uh, instructions for the Satipatthana and for the Anapanasati suttas tells us to practice mindfulness of breathing. In fact, Anapana means in-breath and out-breath, and Sati means mindfulness. But the instruction in the beginning of both of those discourses suggests that we focus attention to the forefront. Now, usually that has been translated over the centuries as sensation of breathing noticed around the nostrils. The rim of the nostrils, the upper lip, just inside the nostrils. Um, there's also another approach to this, which is the rising and falling of the abdomen, the expansion and contraction of the abdomen. Um, those, that's the primary focus of attention. But Analio in his book talks about the forefront being um, that which is foremost in your attention, primary focus. So that could be literally any sensation in the body. The benefit of the breath is that it's always with us, um, that it has a neutral feeling tone. I talked about this in the last talk. And that um, you have to intend to pay attention to the breath because if it's a neutral feeling, it doesn't grab your attention. You have to consciously decide to pay attention to it. So, um, here's the first quote from Analio's book. Although the nostril area is a natural choice for becoming aware of the process of breathing, the same can also be achieved by attending to the back of the throat, to the chest, to the abdominal area, or else even without relying on a particular circumscribed physical location. For those who prefer to work with a single spot, it can still be helpful to broaden awareness beyond that spot to the whole of the breath. The suggestion is not to follow the breath in and out, but to broaden our perspective and arrive at a more complete apperception of the phenomena under contemplation. This phenomena is the breath as a whole, and not only the sensation caused by the breath at a particular spot of the body. Encouraging a broader form of awareness in this way is helpful for the progression through the 16 steps. Now, that's the quote. I'm going to make a comment about that before I start talking about the first tetrad. We think about concentration. It seems to be that you focus your attention on a single point, and that's certainly part of the 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 uh, one of the characteristics of concentration. If you think about concentration in the same way, a simile would be um, the way the focus of a magnifying glass operates. When I was a kid, I had a magnifying glass and I would play with it. And if you move the magnifying glass out in the sunlight, up, up and down, you'll find that the focal length, which is the, the place where the, the energy of the sunlight is focused most sharply, we can call that an exclusion point. It's very hot, very bright, and... Uh, it excludes any other uh, zone in that cone. If you move the uh, magnifying glass lens closer to whatever is a piece of paper, let's say, the circle becomes broader. It's still bright. It's very stable. It's not as hot. That's more of an inclusive understanding of concentration. It includes 
everything within that circle. So those are the two functions or characteristics of concentration that this discourse focuses on. So when he says that you know you can focus on the breath in a singular spot or on the whole sensation of breathing um, as a phenomena, and there's some teachings that say that you start watching the breath at the beginning of the rim of the nostrils and you follow it all the way down to the, the abdomen, the belly, and uh, when you breathe in, and then when you breathe out, you follow the breath all the way out past the rim of the nostrils. Now, that seems to me to be too imaginative. Um, I, my practice basically is focusing uh, at the rim of the nostrils and the upper lip. Um, so, that practice stabilizes attention. One thing I want to make clear about this, we're talking about mindfulness of breathing, is that breathing is the whole issue. The issue is mindfulness. The sensation of breathing is a resource. It's available all the time. What we're trying to do with this is to develop the ability to pay attention in a particular way. Uh, it's non-judgmental and um, fully aware. That's what mindfulness is. Now, the first tetrad goes like this. Uh, by the way, I think I'm going to post the, the whole uh, Sutta when I post the notes. The Sutta starts out with a rather lengthy description of where the Buddha is residing when he gives this talk and talks about all these different groups of monks. Some of them are just initiates. They're just beginning. Some of them are more advanced and there's some that are very, very advanced. And he says that they're all, they're all working very diligently and therefore they deserve to hear this. So um, there's that introduction, I guess. And then there are the 16 stanzas. And then it, after that, there's commentary about the Four Noble Truths and uh, the uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness and the Seven Awakening Factors. So this is a pretty lengthy discourse and very thorough. So here's the first tetrad. While breathing in long, he knows I'm breathing in long. While breathing out long, he knows I'm breathing out long. While breathing in short, one knows I'm breathing in short. While breathing out short, one knows I'm breathing out short. That's the first two stanzas. Third stanza, one trains oneself, sensitive to the whole body, I breathe in. Sensitive to the whole body, I breathe out. The fourth stanza, one trains oneself, calming the whole body, I breathe in. Calming the whole body, I breathe out. Now, the first two stanzas talk about knowing the breath. What that really means is that the sensation is available. You can know it. Um, the training part involves um, using that resource in a way to shape one's attention um, beneficially. I talked about this last week, the shaping of attention, changing the structure of the brain and so forth and so on. Um, so the one trains oneself is repeated throughout the whole uh, 16 stanzas. Uh, something I mentioned last week that I'm going to bring in here as well, what's called a state and a trait. A state is a particular phenomenon that you experience every day of your life, it basically means that um, something occurs in consciousness. It might be a state of concentration. It might be a state of distraction. It might be a state of understanding. It might be a state of confusion. It might be a state of hunger. It might be a state of not being hungry anymore. But a state is a particular way that your sense of self is organized. A trait would be when those states 
are occurring on a regular basis in a disciplined way. Uh, for example, um, if you're concentrating on a sensation of breathing and your attention stays with the breath for two or three breaths, that's a state of concentration. Then your attention gets distracted and your mind wanders off into some kind of fantasy. Um, that's a state of distraction. Come back to the breath. Now, if you can go to the breath and stay with the breath undistracted for a long period of time, that's a trait of concentration. Uh, there's been a lot of contemporary research, psychological research, on mindfulness. And the distinction is made, um, you can actually Google these terms and see where it takes you. State mindfulness and trait mindfulness. And this particular discourse is, the goal of it is to cultivate trait mindfulness. Once again, this is not so much about the breath. The breath is available. It's useful. It really is about mindfulness. Present moment, non-judgmental self-awareness. So, um, sensitive to the whole body. There are different commentaries have different renderings of that. One of them is the whole body of the breath. That could be you're completely aware of the beginning, middle, and end of the in-breath. Completely aware of the beginning, middle, and end of the out-breath. Some commentaries I've read, descriptions of the Anapanasati Sutta or the Satipatthana. Um, this is how they describe that particular uh, stanza. Um, other commentaries uh, talk about um, the whole body, meaning you're aware of the sensation of breathing as the primary target for your attention. Um, but your peripheral awareness is also mindful so that you might be primarily aware of the breath. 80% of your attention is on the breath. But 20% is open. Sort of like I mentioned with the magnifying glass where there's a, a broader scope, a larger circle that's uh, focusing the uh, sun's rays. So uh, that's another way to understand um, sensitive to the whole body, I breathe in. Sensitive to the whole body, I breathe out. Now, when you can cultivate breath awareness for extended periods of time, and you can be aware of what's going on peripherally, you can notice when there's tension in the body. Um, stiffness, uh, muscle, uh, muscles tensing, clamping down, frowning, clenching your jaw, stiffness in the legs, so forth and so on. But when you train the mind sufficiently uh, by the fourth stanza, when the fourth stanza is worked through, shall I say, your body is calm, relaxed, and yet alert. I call it the zone. I've been doing this for about half my life now. I can sit cross-legged. I have a brace on my back. It's what I work with. Um, but once I'm sitting, it doesn't take very long for me to, my body to kind of be stable, uh, not tense, and yet alert. My head might dot, dot, you know, nod down a little bit from time to time. I just straighten it back up again. But... You know, my muscles are not tense. Or if they are tense, the muscles that are sufficient for the cause, I guess you call them core muscles. 
all the muscles around the pelvis and the spine um, that help the body um, be erect. They're functioning, but kind of effortlessly. It's what I call the zone, and that's the uh, completion of the uh, first tetrad. Now, another thing I want to say about this is that when you're watching the breath, and you can do that persistently without interruption, the breath becomes more subtle, fainter, quieter. In fact, it can seem like you're not breathing at all. Now, I'm not saying that you, you try to make that happen. You hold your breath or whatever. No, this is the result of a concentrated mind. The breath becomes very faint and it might seem like panting. It might also seem like you're not breathing at all. But it's very, very faint and subtle. That can be alarming for some people. It may seem like you're oxygen starved. This has happened to me countless times. Not every time I'm meditating, but quite a lot. And I just stay there. Um, and once in a while I might sigh. You know, that just happens. I'm not trying to make it happen, it just happens. But that can be part of the phenomenon. But that's that's the the goal at that stage of uh, the practice. Um, so once you have calmed the body, muscle tension is, is gone, and you are physically relaxed uh, and mentally alert, that sets the stage for the second tetrad, which is mindfulness of feelings. Now, feelings, it's important to understand, we typically think of feelings as emotions, and every emotion has a feeling, but the contemporary term that's relative to this it's more accurately describing what uh, the Buddhist teaching is. It's called affect, A-F-F-E-C-T. Affect is a uh, kind of reactive urgency. It's either subtle or strong regarding a pleasant sensation, pleasant stimulus, or an unpleasant stimulus, or a neutral stimulus. Now, with a neutral stimulus, there's no affect. But the mind is so accustomed to affect because, you know, we talk about craving and clinging being um, an essential part of what we're trying to resolve. And that will be more clear when I get further into the discourse. Um, but uh, craving basically is an affective drive. What we want to do eventually is to reduce the drive so that there is a feeling, but there's no impulsive reactivity associated with it. Just present moment awareness. Um, but when you are um, cultivating this, the first tetrad, when the body becomes more relaxed, that can only happen when the feelings are not predominant. So the, the um, first two tetrads are pretty important in that regard. Um, they kind of are correlated or interactive with one another. So the, the fifth uh, through the eighth uh, stanzas Go like this. One trains oneself. Sensitive to rapture, I breathe in. Sensitive to rapture, I breathe out. One trains oneself. This is the sixth uh, stanza. Sensitive to bliss, I breathe in. Sensitive to bliss, I breathe out. Seventh stanza. One trains oneself. Sensitive to mental processes, I breathe in. Sensitive to mental processes, I breathe out. The eighth stanza. One trains oneself. Calming mental processes, I breathe in. Calming mental processes, I breathe out. 
So let me talk about what the operative terms are here. And once again, with this second tetrad, this relates to the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feelings. In this case, it's being mindful of affect as a phenomena. Every organism has some kind of affective function. If you even look at a single-cell amoeba and you put it in a Petri dish and you put some kind of nutritive uh, substance in that dish, the affect, affective drive of that amoeba will move it toward that sustenance. <clears throat> Alternatively, if you put some kind of toxic substance in that <clears throat> medium, the amoeba will orient away from it. Now, moving towards something is called affect approach psychologically. Moving away is called affect avoidance. Once again, what we're trying to cultivate here is affect neutrality or equanimity would be another way to describe it. So, assuming that the body is relaxed and um, in order to be able to experience that, the mind has to be relatively unperturbed by the hindrances, unperturbed by narrative. Um, so that kind of leads into the third tetrad, um, and I'll be talking about that in a few minutes. But let's talk about rapture and bliss. Now the term in Pali is um, PT, P-I-T-I. Now, it's important to make a distinction here. I talked about sharply focused concentration, exclusive concentration, and then I talked about more broadly focused concentration, which is more like what we would call unification, and it's more inclusive. So, at this stage, the two different approaches to the practice can be described uh, traditionally. One of them is jhana practice. A jhana is an extraordinary state of the mind that is concentrated and is exclusive of anything other than the primary focus of attention. Uh, we, the mind gets to a certain level of stability of focus and one-pointedness, in other words, exclusionary, certain kinds of physiological events occur or physiological processes are activated. With PT, in the jhana practice, there's this very ecstatic feeling that's partly physical, partly emotional, but it is extremely pleasant. I've had that experience. And uh, <clears throat> so that's the description of PT when it applies to jhana. Now, if we're talking about PT in terms of um, the other approach to practice, which is vipassana or insight, PT is not ecstatic. It's a heightened, buoyant interest in what's going on. It's a process of alert attention that is actively engaged in being mindful. It's kind of effortless. Um, you, can be, you can train the mind to be aware of this kind of experience, but that's not really rapture. The word rapture is a bit misleading. Now, bliss is also misleading. If we're talking about jhana practice, bliss is, the, the, the Pali term for that is sukha. And it's a very strong feeling of happiness. Um, if we're talking about in terms of vipassana practice, it's a feeling of satisfaction, of, of uh, present moment, mm, mental pleasantness. Um, 
it's not like it's it's not the same feeling as when you're you know really happy because you're having great fun and you're grinning and laughing and so forth it's a different kind of happiness just a, a deep satisfaction um, one of the similes that's used to describe the PT and sukha if you're out in the desert and you're tired and you're thirsty and you're hungry and you're discouraged because um, you don't know where relief might be found and somebody comes over the dune in front of you and says be of good hope there's an oasis on the other side of this dune there's plenty of water there's plenty of palm trees lots of dates lots of shade as soon as you realize that there is an opportunity for that to be experienced PT occurs this quality of excited enthusiastic interest you get to the oasis you drink water you eat dates uh, you uh, relax in the shade that's sukha to me that's a more workable understanding of the, those experiences they're physiological one of the things that happens when the mind is caught with the hindrances the energy is bound up I call hindrances energy drains it's like the energy keeps circling around or being absorbed in sense desire aversion ill will um, dullness uh, restlessness and worry or doubt those are the five hindrances so the mind gets really hooked into that and the energy that's available is bound up in that but when the when the body is calmed down body is relaxed and the mind calms down the only way that's going to happen is if the hindrances are set aside when the hindrances are set aside that energy is freed up and that energy can be experienced as PT and sukha. It's a physiological state. You cannot make PT happen. You cannot make sukha happen. What you can do is practice mindfulness breathing meditation diligently, persistently, and from that, the consequence will be PT and sukha. So um, that's the sixth, fifth, and sixth. Um, stanza um, the seventh stanza because the mind has this quality of, of un, being unperturbed calm relaxed but alert the energy is more available for more subtle mental states this is sensitive to, you know, the, the seventh one, sensitive to mental processes I breathe in. Mental processes in this case, they're called sankara. And sankara are uh, those conditions which um, condition our sense of self or experience of a self. I'm not going to talk about that more in depth. I'm just going to say that's, that's what we're talking about here with the, the seventh stanza is more sensitive to this more aware of it because the mind is not so caught up with the hindrances now what that means is that the hindrances might be noticeable but they will be noticeable as phenomena they won't be seem so personal it'll just be something that is recognized as a condition of the mind and therefore can be observed as phenomena and that observation uh, is the sensitivity and then what happens is the the uh, storyline the narrative that's associated with uh, the second tetrad the, the eighth uh, stanza calming mental processes that whole notion of what I call the selfing story the internal narrative and commentary dissipates and this naturally feeds into the next uh, phenomenon. Um, well, let me first say about the eighth stanza. At that point, 
there's a, a experience that I call flow. And what that amounts to is because your physical experience is very relaxed, your mental experience is alert and calm, the energy is moving through the system uh, very efficiently with little turbulence and um, this is um, what I call the flow. So here's a quote um, about the eighth stanza, Calming Mental Processes. It's again from Analio's book. The mental activity that has been discerned clearly with the previous step can now be allowed to settle down naturally. <clears throat> Here, calming mental activity does not mean that all types of mental activities have to be entirely tranquilized. Without the presence of any feeling tones and perceptions, it would not be possible to continue the practice any further. The distinction between inhalations and exhalations relies on being aware of feeling tones and perceptions, a distinction relevant throughout the remaining steps. The target of practice at the present juncture is only to calm down mental activity to such a degree that we're able to experience the mind itself, which is the first step in the ensuing tetrad and contemplation of the mind. So, feeling tones and perceptions. Feeling tones I talked about, those are affects. They have to be there because you have to notice what moves attention. But that movement is subtle and much more noticeable as being transitory. You're starting to become more aware of impermanence at this point, which have become more uh, emphasized in the fourth tetrad. And uh, perceptions. Perceptions, basically, what that amounts to is that in the broad field of sensory stimulation, uh, right now I'm sitting here and my eyes are open and light is coming in from all around. Um, there's a, a, a central focus. I'm looking at a reflection of light off of the chrome of the faucet in the uh, sink of the other room. That's a, a, a focal point of perceptual awareness. Peripheral to that, there are other kinds of awarenesses that are not quite so determined or defined. If I shift my focus away from that little bright reflective spot uh, to um, what's beside it, there's uh, some there's a back panel on the sink that's covered with a, a dark green formica. So now that's a perception. It's just a different color, a different kind of marking that goes on visually. But when the, the little spot of bright reflective light, that's just a perception. But then the mind labels it. Labels it in two ways. First, there is the self that is observing it. And then there is the object that is being observed. This is called duality. Keep that in mind because I'll be going back to talk about that when I talk about the um, fourth tetrad. Alternately, when I shift the focus to the, the uh, splashback, um, the green covered with uh, that green material, so there's a different perception, and then the mind folds in a narrative, a commentary that says, okay, this is for Micah, uh, it's covering a piece of wood, etc., etc., because I built it, so I know what it is. Uh, so that's what perception is. There's a feeling tone that's associated with the reflection off of the faucet. It's neutral because I'm not particularly attracted to it or repelled by it. There's a feeling tone about the backsplash, um, not particularly affective because, you know, it's neutral, but it's still a feeling. So that's what this is talking about. Uh, this particular uh, tetrad is addressing that. So, um, 
Now I'm going to go to the third tetrad, and it's, it's uh, associated with the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind. And here's the quote, the ninth stanza. One trains oneself sensitive to the mind, I breathe in. Sensitive to the mind, I breathe out. Tenth stanza. One trains oneself gladdening the mind, I breathe in. Gladdening the mind, I breathe out. Eleventh stanza. One trains oneself steadying the mind, I breathe in. Steadying the mind, I breathe out. And twelfth stanza. One trains oneself liberating the mind, I breathe in. Liberating the mind, I breathe out. Sensitive to the mind. So, mindfulness of the mind is, in a way, being aware of the mood. So, I might, you know, my mood right now is pretty mellow. I've been meditating. I enjoy talking about the Dharma. So, I'm not particularly... Um, excited or uh, upset or anything like that. So the mood in my mind is relaxed and calm and alert. So that's different than whatever I might be paying attention to. So that's what mindfulness of the mind is. So sensitive to the mind, I breathe in. Sensitive to the mind, I breathe out. You remember I mentioned that uh, part of this practice involves using sensation breathing as a stabilizing point of reference around which there are peripheral awarenesses. And the mind moves from that focal point on breath awareness, the neutrality of it, and kind of moves out to be aware of other phenomena. Then it goes back to the breath, other phenomena, back to the breath, this is what the practice is about. Um, one of the teachers who I respect, a fellow named Chula Dasa, who's no longer alive, his book called The Mind Illuminated, he says that my, uh, Vipassana is the optimal interaction between focused attention and peripheral awareness. That's what I just described. So there's this um, quality of attention that is aware of whether my mind is alert or dull, distracted or focused, um, energized or, or uh, dull, so forth and so on. Gladdening the mind, I breathe in. Now, this word gladdening is... Uh, a challenging term. Uh, here's what Analio has to say about gladdening the mind, comparing it to the flow of uh, a stream. By way of illustration, we might imagine a swiftly flowing rivulet as an exemplification of the joy experienced with the first step of the previous tetrad on contemplation of feeling tones. Suppose at some point this rivulet enters a large lake. The flowing into the lake illustrates the happiness of the second step of the tetrad on contemplation of feeling tones. So we've got piti and sukha. There is still some motion, but it is no longer as swift and lively as earlier. Once the water is settled in the midst of the lake and become quiet, this then represents the gladdening of the mind with the second step of the third tetrad on contemplation of the mind. The image is not meant to convey the idea that these are static conditions that invariably manifest in the same manner. Progressing through the 16 steps repeatedly will result in different experiences of joy, for example, or of happiness or gladness. The water simile only aims to illustrate how these three states relate to each other. Joy, happiness, and gladness are just different modalities of a basically positive mental condition conjoined with pleasant feeling tones, all of which can be illustrated with the example of water. The joy is more active. The happiness is, in comparison, quieter, and the gladdening of the mind more profoundly still. 
in line with the general shift from mental activities in the pre previous tetrad to the mind as such in the present tetrad. Over the course of sustained meditative training, each of these three will mature and incline the mind ever more to a deeper inner sense of mental composure. So gladness is a sense of satisfaction, of, of um, being at peace with what's happening, not really needing things to be changed in any other way other than just being present for what's happening. Uh, there's a term it's used often, it's called choiceless awareness. You're just aware. Now, stanza 11, steadying the mind, describes how the various factors of a wholesome mindset come together. This brings up the term samadhi. I often talk about samadhi and I combine it with another term, pasadhi. Samadhi is unification of the mind or concentration. Pasadhi is tranquility of the mind. So tranquility of the mind is more like the gladness. Um, so um, the cone uh, uh, generated by the magnifying glass is another way to describe samadhi. As soon as the light starts to be organized through the lens of the magnifying glass, samadhi begins. There's samadhi in that central area where there's a, a circle, if you will. There's also samadhi at the hot, sharp point. But it's all steadying the energy. Um, so this steadying the mind is also related to the sixth uh, of the seven awakening factors, which is unification. And that basically is how the factors are coordinated and cooperating. The seven factors are mindfulness, investigation of mental phenomena, energy slash effort slash persistence, joy, um, tranquility, unification, and equanimity. So um, unification is samadhi. So uh, Here's what Analu has to say about that. The term concentration does not refer to a narrow focus that excludes anything that does not fit into the circumscribed passageway of its restricted field of attention. Instead, in the way of practice described here, the cultivation of concentration carries more a flavor of natural converging, coming together in an effortless unification of the mind that rests within itself, composed and at ease. It is as if the whole of subjective experience is held in a loving and caring embrace such that it becomes completely unified with no trace of its usual fragmentation left. At this juncture then, the whole body awareness practiced throughout becomes a whole body and whole mind experience. That's unification. Now I've had that experience when I'm meditating, particularly on retreats. I'm aware of the breath, I'm aware of the body, I'm aware of what's going on in the mind and it's like all together. And that includes peripheral sounds. They're all in this field of reference without necessarily singling out any one of them. Or I might say that all of them are singled out, if you will. Um, uh, so that's what this particular stanza is about, stanza 11. Um, this leads to stanza 12, which is the liberation. One trains oneself, liberating the mind I breathe in, liberating the mind I breathe out. Now, liberation occurs throughout this whole practice. Every time the mind goes to the breath, and is not particularly um, afflicted by the hindrances. That's a moment of liberation. The mind is liberated. The hindrance, the effect of the hindrance is being renounced. Remember that word, renunciation. I'll be making that distinction 
few minutes when I'm done with this talk. Because that's what uh, uh, renunciation leads to relinquishment. So um, the mind is liberated every time you go back to the breath. It's a state of liberation. As the mind develops further, then the state of liberation becomes more a trait of liberation. The mind is less and less disturbed by craving and clinging. And that's what uh, happens during the fourth uh, tetrad. You know, I'm going to read the uh, stanzas. Thirteenth stanza. One trains oneself, focusing on impermanence, I breathe in. Focusing on impermanence, I breathe out. Fourteenth stanza. One trains oneself, focusing on fading away, I breathe in. Focusing on fading away, I breathe out. Fifteenth stanza. One trains oneself, focusing on cessation, I breathe in. Focusing on cessation, I breathe out. And sixteenth stanza. One trains oneself, focusing on relinquishment, I breathe in. Focusing on relinquishment, I breathe out. So this is the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mental phenomena. Now, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the different elements of the fourth foundation is being free of the hindrances um, and the cultivation of the seven awakening factors, fulfillment of the seven awakening factors. There are other aspects of it as well, but these are the ones that are really pertinent to the Anapanasati Sutta. So, the uh, 13th stanza, impermanence, I breathe in. Now, this is anicca. Anicca is the transitory nature of subjective experience. It's changing all the time on a moment-by-moment basis. Uh, The way the mind operates out of ignorance, the untrained mind, these different moments of self-organization are blended together very rapidly. In fact, Chuladasa uh, quotes uh, some aspects of Buddhist psychology and says there are binding moments uh, of the mind. These binding moments basically is when several moments of self-organization that occur, states of moments, uh, blend together and becomes a trait of being a self, I guess you could say. Um, so, uh, becoming more aware of how the state of the mind is changing on a moment-by-moment basis. The breath is changing, and that's from the very beginning. And investigating the changing nature of the breath is one part of it, but the more important part of it is changing the changing nature of the mind that is aware of the changing nature of the breath. That's what this particular stanza is addressing is the impermanent nature of mental phenomena. So the next stanza focusing on fading away you know, one trains oneself focusing on fading away I breathe in, focusing on fading away I breathe out. This brings another poly word into play, viraga which is translated as dispassion. Now dispassion isn't um, dullness or um, um, flatness in awareness. The mind is very acutely aware, more aware than ever. Uh, you can't be aware of these subtle phenomena in the last tetrad and have the mind be dull. Mind has to be very alert, very agile, very, very uh, workable, so forth and so on. Uh, Fading away is viraga. And it basically, the, the, there are two similes that I use to describe it that I can relate to. One of them is what happens when the ink runs out in your printer. Um, you're printing out a page and you notice as the top, the, the, the print is uh, more vivid, but the further down the page you go, the more faint it gets and some words are left out. And eventually it gets really, really faint and the bottom of the page is blank. That's one way to understand viraga. 
Another way to understand it is if you're in a room and somebody's uh, talking very loudly and it's hard to ignore them, but then you go into another room that's well insulated, you close the door, there's still a sound in the other room, but you're not at all interested in listening to it. You just know it's there. It's just the phenomena of sound, but the mind does not care to make meaning out of it, to change the sound into words. That's another way to understand viraga. So there's this sense of, of uh, fading away, of interest, of craving and clinging regarding what's going on. The next uh, stanza, cessation. Now, um, the word there in, in Pali and also in, in uh, Sanskrit is naroda. Uh, Naroda is the absence of craving and clinging. It's, and there are lots of descriptions for it, but that's what's pertinent to the discussion tonight. There's just, the, the mind doesn't, you know, what's going on in the mind, the creation of a self is inter, not interested in it. Uh, one of the ways to describe it is that the mind becomes tired of selfing. The awareness of the the dukkha, the distress and confusion that is inherent in craving and clinging. The mind just doesn't care to do that anymore. Now this is not nihilistic. It's not suicidal or anything like that. It's just that there's this realization that it's just what's going on here is something that a brain does. It's not a self. Um, so, um, impermanence, dukkha, and non-self are the three fundamental characteristics that Buddhism is endeavoring to realize. So, these particular stanzas uh, flesh that out, if you will. So, there's, you're aware of the transitory nature, you're aware that trying to hold on to the ego is tiring. It's, it's fruitless. The mind stays alive, vital, but it's open then to the 16th stanza, relinquishment. I mentioned something about renunciation earlier. Renunciation is the intention to disregard or redirect the focus of attention away from a particular self-state to a different self-state that's more liberating. Um, relinquishment is uh, does not involve intentionality at all. Or if there is an intention, it is the ultimate intention, which is the door to nirvana. At that point, from what I've read and what I understand, my concept of it is, even intention goes away, there's just suchness. There's no um, observer and there's no nothing being observed. There is just suchness. The Buddha, after his awakening, did not call himself the Buddha. In fact, he used a third person pronoun, the Tathagata. The word Tathagata basically has lots of different renderings, but the one I prefer is mastery of suchness. There's this total realization of unconditioned reality. So here's the last quote from Analio's book that's relative to this. <clears throat> the insight progression that underlies the present tetrad on contemplation of dharmas could be illustrated with the example of standing on the bank of a river. Facing the water and looking at its flow corresponds to contemplation of impermanence. <clears throat> Suppose now we step on a bridge that spans over the river and face the direction in which the water flows, whereby our perspective will be with more emphasis on the motion of the water away from us. This change of position illustrates contemplation of dispassion, when emphasis is on the moving away 
and eventual disappearance of contemplated phenomena. Next, we might turn around on the bridge and face the direction from which the river comes. Instead of looking out to the far distance, we look straight down to see how the water disappears from view right at the edge of the bridge. This illustrates contemplation of cessation, when the disappearance and ending of things stands out prominently. Finally, we might let ourselves plunge into the river itself. This illustrates the final step in the present tetrad, letting go. Beside attempting to convey a practical flavor of each of the four insight themes, the simile of the river is also meant to point to their interrelation. At first sight, it might seem that impermanence is a quality of the object and dispassion a subjective response to it. Again, cessation can appear a quality of the object uh, and letting go of a subjective reaction to it. Although this is indeed a way of reading the insight progression described here, such a distinction between subject and object does not do full justice to the insight dynamics that can unfold here. Impermanence and cessation need to be applied as well to the subjective. Conversely, viraga, in its alternative sense of fading away, can be a dimension of the object. Letting go needs to be comprehensive, comprising object and subject. From this viewpoint, each of the four insight contemplations can have a broad range of possible applications. So I mentioned this leads to, at the end of the discourse, leads to realization of the validity of the Four Noble Truths, potential of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and the optimal functioning of the Seven Awakening Factors. So, the notes will be posted. I hope you will be interested to read them because I think that they're very useful in understanding this. Now we have the opportunity for questions or comments. Before we wrap it up for the evening. I know I gave you a lot of information, but it's important. It's important. It's useful to contemplate. Questions or comments? Hi, just a comment. Yes, Debbie. That was that was awesome um talking about the the four i don't remember what they're called though the four what did you call that tetrads okay t-e-t-r-a-d-s and the feeling and and those two i'm like okay i get it with the body and i get it with the feeling you get to the mind and it's almost like it's two things there's me and then there's my mind and then i've got to get control you know, the storyteller or the, the crazy thoughts or the different things. But I really enjoyed it. So let me make a comment about that third one. In the four foundations of mindfulness, the third foundation, mindfulness of the mind, the commentary is like, is the mind alert or dull? Focused or distracted? Um Okay. So it's desirous, be, having this, being filled with desire or free from desire, right? So it's like a mood, right? That's what we're talking about with that. Does that clarify for you? Yes. <laughs> Makes it easier. Yes. Other questions or comments before we uh, end this evening's talk? Okay, the topic for next week is going to be very interesting. Uh, one of our Sangha members, uh, Leslie Laws, is on a retreat in Costa Rica on the western coast of that country as we are meeting here, participating in a retreat that combines Hatha Yoga and mindfulness meditation. So next... Um, Wednesday night, the 15th, she's going to talk about her experience. This is something we do routinely. When someone's had a significant retreat experience, the meeting afterwards is dedicated to allowing them to think out loud about their experience. So I'm very much looking forward to it. 
I hope that you might be interested enough to participate as well. Now, at the end of every meeting, we have a brief closing meditation, so let's do that. Thank you for your practice. I wish you well. I hope that we all enjoy a reasonably safe and happy interval until we have a chance to talk again.